The following is a hoop ball presentation. The Clippers have officially arrived in the Lakers' house now, and we are here and focused on the Lakers' hoop ball podcast to talk LeBron James, to talk Anthony Davis versus Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and the next era of basketball in Los Angeles. Welcome in and welcome back to the Hoopball Lakers podcast. As always, I am your man, Ethan Noroff, and I am thrilled and honored to be joined today by my guest, Jacob Rood, co-host of the Lakers Silver Screen and Roll podcast, co-editor of Lonzo Wire. He is, you can follow him on Twitter at Jacob Rude, J-A-C-O-B-R-U-D-E. You can follow the Silver Screen and Roll blog, Lakers blog over at SB Nation at Lakers SBN. And because he's the co-editor of Lonzo Wire, you can also follow, follow Lonzo Wire at Lonzo Wire on Twitter. Jacob, is there anything that you don't do, man? Welcome to the show. Well, as we were discussing beforehand, I don't cover successful Lakers teams. Um, but yeah, the, it's been a wild, wild uh, t- first 10 days of July. I guess even going back to trading for Anthony Davis, it's been a wild about last three weeks. So it's fun to uh, fun to finally be a Lakers fan again. No question about it. And, you know, you're about to cover your best Lakers team ever, or so we think, at least on paper, right? Yeah, I, I started covering uh, the Lakers <clears throat> May before the Dwight Mayor. So basically the start of free agency, that kind of period. Um, and so, yeah, as I was saying, last season's Lakers team was the best Lakers team Uh that I've covered and last year was chaos. So please Lakers give me one good team. Give me a playoff game to cover. Like I'm not even asking for a whole lot right here. It could be a first round exit at this point. And I think I'd be, I'd be happier than what I've had to cover the last couple of years. So what you're saying here, Jacob, is for those non-Lakers fans who have found their way onto this podcast and are listening to us today, not only do Lakers fans not only – we don't expect to win the championship every year, but in your case, you haven't even expected a good team over the last few years. So I think our baseline for Lakers fans has sort of shifted, and you are the perfect example of this. Yeah, there's there's a couple times I saw on Twitter where people like – talking about oh well if we get this person and this person we're just going to be like a western conference finalist team and that's our ceiling i'm like great i'll take it like let's go to the western conference finals i'm i'm thrilled with that like i miss playoff basketball i miss i mean at the time i didn't even realize it but i miss watching getting frustrated at run our test and like playoff series and stuff like that like i would happily take those days back so yes please just let's get back to the playoffs I think we all would. And you know that my favorite part about Twitter throughout this free agent process has to be the valuation of free agents and how much they would take or not take to come play for the Lakers. If I could have a dollar for every time I saw Patrick Beverly or Danny Green on the minimum or the room exception, I'd be a millionaire and we'd all be retired already. Yeah, that was there were a couple of times where people were, were like, you know, we could get Kawhi and then Danny Green will take the, the mid-level. And I'm, even before free agency, I'm like, I think he's going to make more than that. And then, like, the Rudy Gay contract comes across on my Woj notifications. And I'm like, oh, Danny Green's getting a lot more money than, than the room exception. Oh, yeah. I think it was when Trevor Ariza got $25 million from the Sacramento Kings. And I said, yeah, I think that Danny Green room exception, mid-level exception, any type of salary exception just went right out the window, didn't it? Yeah, 100%. The minute I saw those two, I'm like, okay, well, he's getting like $18 million a year, $15 million a year. Like, you can kiss any exceptions goodbye. And I was a little surprised by, 
I knew the contracts were going to be big this year, but they were, in a way, it was almost, it wasn't terrible that the Lakers missed out on everything because it kind of almost saved them from themselves waiting on Kawhi. Because mm-hmm. I don't trust that this front office wouldn't have handed out a bad contract or two. I don't think it would have been Mozgov or Ding levels of bad, but uh, some of the numbers that were getting thrown around, like you said, Ariza, that Ariza contract, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And some of the, some of those contracts... It wasn't the worst thing that the Lakers just kind of had to sit back and wait and and kind of pick up the scraps at the end, I don't think. Well, that's and you know what, man, I totally agree with you. And that's I'm glad you brought that up, because that's something that I've been trying to really stress and make clear to everyone who's willing to listen is that we hear we hear all this talk about, oh, it was Kawhi or bust for Lakers offseason. And I'm sorry, but it's still Anthony friggin Davis on this team in this mm-hmm. offseason to pair with LeBron James. Like, let's take a step back for a second. But on top of that, not only was it not Kawhi or bust. But the Lakers have done a really good job of filling out this roster. The logical construction makes way more sense than last offseason, especially considering the key personnel. And on top of that, for all these people who say, oh, the Lakers really missed out by waiting on Kawhi Leonard. Missed out on what? The chance to overpay free agents? The chance to just be in when everybody and every other team is in the market to try and create more competition and artificially drive the price up? So the Lakers, in my opinion, honestly, yes, they chase Kawhi Leonard. And yes, They may have had to exercise a level of patience that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, but I still haven't heard from anyone what exactly the Lakers actually missed out on besides Kawhi Leonard himself. I think there were a couple players I really liked that I, that I had hoped that the Lakers would have a chance at, but there weren't any contracts that went by. There might've been one or two contracts. I think that went by those first couple of days or like that first kind of 24 hours that I thought, Oh, I would have really liked to have, him on that contract on the Lakers. I know, I mean, it was Seth Curry, I remember, was one. And honestly, I'm not even sure if there was another uh, contract that, that went by. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the Lakers did a very good job of having a, a plan B in place, which it kind of felt like the longer Danny Green went unsigned, it was kind of pretty clear he was their plan B, as it obviously turned out. But, um, I think they did a really good job of having a plan B in place. And the minute Kawhi was gone, I mean, there was a flurry. They're like, all right, let's let's do plan B and just went around. And pretty much everyone was signed within about 24 hours. And um, as you said, the roster construction is so different from last year. And it makes so much more sense around Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And I've, I've said this a couple times Um I've tweeted it out a couple times. <laughs> the the better and better this I think the front office did a pretty good job this this offseason. I don't really have any complaints, which really makes me ask a whole lot of questions about Magic Johnson and how much power he was given and why he was put in that position. Absolutely. Magic Johnson's best role is as a recruiter. And even in that role, he's got his own flaws. I do not believe the front office was the best role for him. And I think the Lakers and Jeannie Buss, as we know, she likes to uh, operate from what's familiar, for lack of a better way to say it. And, you know, I think that was a big part of his hire. And, I, and I'm glad that Magic is now in this role where he can be the spokesman on behalf of everybody, whether it's the Lakers or anyone else, because that's the role for him and, and let Rob run the front office. And it seems to me so far in the one offseason where Rob has truly had the front office to himself, he's done a pretty good job. Yeah, and <laughs> the problem is, I do agree Magic's best role as a recruiter, but the problem is even in that role, he may have hurt the Lakers this year by immediately running and telling the closest source available that 
how how great the meeting was with Kawhi Leonard and potentially kind of hurting the Lakers' chances. I don't know how much I believe that, but I'm right. sure it probably didn't help that he immediately, within like hours of the meeting, there was a story about how the meeting went, basically. I'm sure it didn't help, but you know what? Kawhi Leonard's on the Clippers. We're here to talk about the Lakers. So let's talk about these Lakers. And before we do, I am feeling fired up. And it's not because I spent my first day at summer camp yesterday working with a bunch of five and six-year-old kids. It is because as I'm sitting here and recording this podcast, I got a fresh batch of Hawaiian Isles Kona coffee sitting right next to me. We could not do this without them. Follow them on Twitter at H.I. Kona Coffee. Find them on Amazon or just about any place your previous favorite bag of coffee is sold. And I said, yes, your previous favorite, because once you try Hawaiian Isles Kona Coffee, you're not going to want to go back to whatever your previous brand was. And so we sit here and we talk about the Lakers. We're fully fueled, fully caffeinated, and we think about how this roster comes out. And to go back to what you said, let me ask you two different questions. The first is, there were a couple contracts that went by, I agree with you, that said, ah, you know what, that could have been a useful play player at a useful price for Lakers. One of those guys for me specifically was Jeremy Lamb. At the start of free agency, if you could if you would have told me, you know what, Ethan, Jeremy Lamb's going to get 3 years and 40 million dollars, I might not pay him that, but I think that's what he was going to get. And I would have said, "Eh, that sounds about right. He's, you know, kind of a hot free agent coming off of a good year in a market where role players are said to get paid. I could see that happening." And then the morning that he signed, I asked one of my friends and said, "Hey, if your team gave Jeremy Lamb 3 years and 35 million, would you be happy?" And he was like, "Yeah, it sounds like about the right price." And then we learned that he signed with the Pacers for 3 years and 31 and a half million. Look, I like Jeremy Lamb the player. I like Jeremy Lamb at that contract number, but let me put it like this. Would you rather have Jeremy Lamb or would you rather have Contavious Caldwell-Pope and DeMarcus Cousins? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's a context I was about to put it in, is I'd rather have spend $2 million more million and get Jeremy Lamb versus um, bringing back Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Um, and I do think Pope, KCP gets I, – I, I said this in, in some other places. I think he became kind of a lightning rod for the – upset fans at the end of last season um, with just how the Lakers underperformed and he was the guy out there at the end of the year still chucking up shots and and we were still paying him a ton of money which all those are fair fair complaints but I think he kind of became a lightning rod for a lot of the complaints I think he's a useful player eight million dollars might be a bit too much the Lakers didn't really have a lot of leverage there he was one of the few wings available but a hundred percent like looking back in hindsight I would have loved to have paid Jeremy Lamb pretty much 10 million dollars a year um, he was excellent offensively last year um, probably the Hornets second best player uh, which I don't think is probably saying a lot because I don't know that the Hornets weren't very good but uh, yeah, 100%. To get a 3 and D wings are just about as valuable a commodity as you can find um, on the market nowadays, and they're probably more valuable than ever on the court. So, yeah, Jeremy Lamb was near the top of my list. I thought I thought the Lakers could get him for cheaper, potentially. I don't even think I thought that they could get him for $10 million. 
Well, you know, I agree with you. I think KCP has become a very polarizing player, especially after that whole house arrest situation last year, wearing the anklet to the game, et cetera, et cetera. And let's play the long game a little bit with KCP because I think a lot of people are judging him based off of his his past and not necessarily what he could be to this particular Lakers team. We all know that when he signed the one-year $18 million deal when he first came to Lakers, it was an overpay. It was a it was a rental of cap space. In other words, we had to fill it somehow. So let's give KCP the deal. Hopefully it'll bring LeBron, which it did. Not to say that KCP netted LeBron, but I'm sure it didn't hurt, right? Then you sign LeBron last offseason. You bring back KCP for one year, $12 million. We'll call that the LeBron tax, the LeBron luxury tax, if you even want to call it like that. So now you're up to two years, $30 million for KCP. And now you bring him back for two more years. Of course, the second year is a player option, but two more years at $16 million total. So that's a four-year, $46 million deal. Two summers ago, KCP rejected five years, $80 million from the Pistons to bet on himself. So it winds up being a bad business move from his perspective. But if you're the Lakers, four and 46 in that context sounds a little bit better than some of these other higher one-year deals that we've heard from KCP in the past. And in an NBA where Terrence Ross and Jordan Clarkson are both 50-plus million-dollar players, is KCP at $46 million really that egregious is my question. Yeah, Terrence Ross was somebody I wasn't too thrilled on and especially when the contract came out that he got yeah i would i would much rather have the kcp kind of like as you put it kind of the four-year kcp contract versus the the one terrence ross got and i mean kcp hasn't been bad he was a 83rd percentile player percentage last year he was 81st percentile in spot ups i think a lot of the problems with him is he was put in situations he probably shouldn't have been put in just because of the, the yeah the roster construction that the Lakers had. Um, he's still a great spot up shooter. He's still probably a average above average guy coming off screens, and he's still really good coming off handoffs. It's just a lot of the other things he probably ran too much pick and roll. He was. It was wild watching him on transition. <laughs> it was sometimes great and sometimes awful. Um, and you would think that there will be less of those situations now that we're apparently going to get point LeBron. And there's, I, I think that there's going to be more of a rigid offensive system than there was under Luke, where it was a lot of kind of free-flowing, free push the ball, fill these channels, try to get to the rim type of thing. I think it'll be a more... Um, an offense that's more screens deliberate. and yeah, de- yeah, that's a great word, deliberate. And I think that'll benefit someone like KCP, where he's going to be able to to just catch the ball and shoot, or just spot up, or just come off a screen and shoot, and have less decisions to make. Hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. I think KCP in a defined role, especially if it's KCP coming off the bench with the second unit, will be of tremendous benefit to him. And the reality is, this roster construction should leave him with a lot more open looks than he's been used to. Because if you can run a five-man lineup out there that it has LeBron and AD in the pick and roll, maybe put Avery Bradley in one corner, KCP in another corner, and a guy like Quinn Cook at the top, well, good luck guarding that. I think that makes a lot more sense, and you can see the value of KCP come back. I think what the Lakers are hoping for is in his first season with the Lakers, so in 2017-18, KCP was over 38% from behind the three-point line. That was by far his career best mark, and I think the Lakers, for them to be able to use KCP in the way in which they intend to, need to see a return to that form, not the third 
34.7 we saw last season because in this NBA, basically league average is about 35.5%, 36%. So when somebody is shooting 36%, it might look good, but really it's more capable than good. Yeah, 100%. It's The league has kind of grown so quickly to a three-point shooting league that what was once seen as like 35% was once seen as an above-average three-point shooter. Really, it... 33% was kind of like bang average. Um, so 35% in some ways was seen as kind of above average. And now the league has progressed so much that 35% is pretty much league average, like you said. And you don't want to pay somebody the money that you're paying KCP to be an average three-point shooter. Um, so, yeah, I agree. He'll have to he'll have to kind of come back to that 38% three-point shooter um, from his first year. Um, but as we said, I think he probably just had too many responsibilities in the, the recent years. And the injuries really just screwed this team all up last year. I don't, I, I'm sure you guys talked about it. I know I've talked about it a lot. It, guys were constantly in different positions. Um, they were constantly starter, bench. Like Kuzma, I thought, was one that kind of got jerked around most. He was a starter, then he was a guy that was coming off the bench, then he was the small ball five, and then he was the guy that they needed to score. And then it, it's – and that was the case for a lot of guys. And that much uncertainty and that much change really kind of affects how you're able to play, really. So – and I think KCP might have been another guy like that who had his role change a lot. He went from – being the guy that they needed to score his first year to like maybe a spot up guy next to LeBron to all kinds of things. And he was even benched at times, which I know that he wasn't thrilled about. And, um, but he was the only guy, I think he was the only guy that played 82 games last year. I know he played 82 games. I don't think anybody else, uh, anybody else did. So, I mean, they're, there's a lot of reasons to be uh, frustrated with KCP, but to me, when I saw the contract, I thought that was about market value. And I, if an $8 million contract is the worst contract on your books, then you probably had a pretty good offseason. Agreed. And I think, you know, and, and we all benefit from continuity, whether we're playing basketball, whether we're going into work, whatever it is that we do in our own daily lives, like the continuity is such a huge factor. And that's going to be a major theme, I think, on this Lakers roster because they have so many what feel like interchangeable parts and so much versatility and actual depth. It's a good problem to have if you're Frank Vogel. And I think a guy who's similar to KCP in the sense that he's a little bit polarizing. I think people try to evaluate him in a vacuum, especially in Los Angeles, because we saw him most with the Clippers before he moved on to the Memphis is the newest Laker, Avery Bradley, right? So Avery Bradley comes on board via the room exception. He's a guy, when we got rumblings that the Grizzlies were probably going to waive him because I think he only had a couple million dollars guaranteed in his salary. We kind of saw that writing on the wall, especially with the Grizzlies rebuilding. I said, ah, man, that's really a guy who I'd like to be near the top of the Lakers to-do list only because I feel like he'd fit the structure of this team really well. And I heard a lot of, ah, he wasn't good with the Clippers, blah, blah, blah. He wasn't healthy. Well, the same player who shot under 40%, okay, he was a sub 40% shooter with the Clippers. And I'm not talking from three, I'm talking in general from the field. And this is a career 43.5% shooter, so this is a big step back for him. He was 38.3% from the floor with the Clippers. But then in his 14 games with Memphis, his field goal percentage was back up to 46.3%. 
He shot it way better from behind the arc at 38.4%, more in line with that career 36.4 mark. And he looked like the kind of player who can contribute on this roster. So you can argue, in my opinion, I think, okay, if you want to sit here and argue semantics, like Avery Bradley could have been had on the minimum. Maybe that's the case, but maybe not because maybe there were, there was some competition for his services. I still think he's a better defender than what the numbers uh, showed him out to be. I think he will be an asset on the perimeter. There was only one other guy to, to me with that, specifically with that room exception, who I would have seen, a, I would have liked to see the Lakers take take a roll of the dice on. That player was Jermichael Green. But as soon as the Clippers landed Kawhi Leonard and obviously Paul George via trade, it became very clear to me that Jermichael Green was probably going back to Los Angeles just because they kind of had to return their own players at that point. They didn't have any other moves. So Jermichael Green, you can't miss what you never have or what, what you never had. But I felt like Jermichael Green would have been a nice fit on the roster, especially from a defensive standpoint. But I can understand the Lakers' desire to work that room exception into the backcourt versus in the front court where you already have Kyle Kuzma, Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins, and JaVale McGee. What's your take, Jacob? So there's a, there's a couple things you said I do agree with. I Pretty much everything about Jermichael Green I agree with. He was one of the guys before free agency started um, that I had targeted that I really wanted. I really liked him on the Clippers, especially in the playoffs. Um, I thought he played really well. 40% from three, Jermichael Green. Like, nobody knows about this guy, and he's one of the most impressive bigs who nobody talks about. Yeah, 100%, especially um, on a team with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. I thought he'd be a perfect 3 and D wing kind of stretch four type. Um, But as you said, the minute Kawhi returned, he was going to return. So I just kind of... Wrote that one off the minute I, I read the Kawhi news. Um, as for Avery Bradley, I'm not I'm not crazy about the idea, but I do agree that he fits this roster construction, particularly if the Lakers are going to play LeBron at point guard, um, because LeBron certainly isn't going to guard the other team's point guards. Um, and Avery Bradley is a guy that can play next to LeBron and guard those point guards. Um, he has had some injuries in the past couple years that have kind of hurt him, um, hurt his production. Um, he was still, I mean, his synergy profile is really ugly from when it was on the Clippers. There's a lot of fifth percentiles and fourth percentiles and, and this and that. He was still 73rd percentile spot up shooter. He's still really good at the probably the one thing he's going to do most with the uh, with the Lakers or yeah with the Lakers. Um, I thought at times he was asked to do some things that he probably wasn't all that comfortable with with the the Clippers, and we saw when he went to the uh, Grizzlies that um, he be, he moved into a more comfortable role um, and. He had, I think he had the ball a lot more. He was more of a um, pick-and-roll player. He was a lot more productive in that regard. And probably unsurprisingly, he returned to the form that um, he had shown in the past. So if you're, I guess, guaranteeing me that we get the Memphis version of Avery Bradley, mm-hmm. um, then I'm fine with this uh, with this signing. The problem is I have a lot of friends who are Clippers fans who I saw the entire year complaining about Avery Bradley, and maybe that's kind of 
tainted my vision a little bit in in this signing, but I'm a, I'm a little worried. I'm not. I wasn't really worried about or upset about them signing Bradley over over anyone else on the market necessarily because there wasn't a market left. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm not crazy about the signing, but I could very easily see a path where it works. Okay, so I'm gonna peg you as cautiously optimistic. Is that fair? That'd be fair. Yeah, I mean, there's enough numbers that over the past or over last season that there's reason to believe that he could be productive next year. And, and I mean, here's the thing for me, and I know you can't wipe out seasons like they never happened. Don't get me wrong. But if you wipe out his Clippers tenure just for the sake of this exercise and go back to 2016-17, his final season in Boston, if you go back to that season, he shot 39% from three that year. 2017-18 with Detroit, he shot 38.1% from three. And then obviously when he got to Memphis, like I just said, 38.4%. So maybe it was a matter of fit with the Clippers. And I think this is something that in the NBA as fans, as media, as observers, whatever your role is, that we tend to overlook, especially as we're evaluating role players in a vacuum. So much of it is circumstance, opportunity, role, how the player is used, etc. It's not just how good the player is because I remember a certain Lakers team that featured a backcourt of D'Angelo Russell and Jordan Clarkson and Jordan Clarkson was out there scoring 20 a night and then the Lakers gave Clarkson four years, 50 million. Everyone's like, oh, that's great. And now Jordan Clarkson in Cleveland, everyone's like, wow, Jordan Clarkson makes $50 million. I cannot believe that. Yeah, and I mean, even this kind of opportunity and circumstance is what we were talking about with KCP. Like, it just depends on the role you put these guys in as to whether they'll succeed or not. Um, and, and, I mean, on paper, it seems like Avery Bradley would be able to succeed um, as a 3 and D kind of wing that he was best at. That was mainly what he was used at in Boston. It's just kind of a 3 and D guy playing off of um, those other Paul Pierce and Garnett while they were there and kind of some of those bigger name players. Um, it was just, it seemed like in, um, with the Clippers in LA that his role kind of changed a little bit and he was basically at times just kind of told to go stand in the corner and wait for us to pass you the ball. And that's not a role that he was very good at. So, um, I'm, I'm intrigued. Like I said, if he can find that form, um, that he was in Boston, like this would be a great signing. He's still only 28. So it's not like he's like past his prime washed. Like, it's not amazing that he's only 28. It feels like he's been in the league for 15 years. Yeah. A hundred percent. I was very surprised as I looked at that, that he's only 28. Um, so if he can get healthy and kind of return to that form, then yeah, this is a great use of the, of the room exception. And like I said, there wasn't really anybody out there that, I would have rather used it on the only other thing I would have rather done is hang on to it for the buyout market, whether that includes Iggy or not, just so you can be able to offer a little bit more than the minimum um, to some of those guys when they get bought out. But I still think the Lakers are going to be kind of a prime destination for guys when they get bought out. Um, So I'm not really sure how much that matters anyway. And I agree with you because just literally Minutes, maybe an hour before the Bradley signing was reported, 
that he'd be coming to the Lakers, I said, hmm, it feels like maybe the Lakers are waiting to use their room exception for Andre Iguodala if and when that buyout from Memphis does happen. And then, of course, the Bradley move happened, and we said, well, I guess that's not the case. So perhaps the Lakers didn't feel like they wanted to wait that long on the Iguodala game of chickens staring at each other with Memphis because they threatened, threatened in air quotes, right, to trade him in order to extract additional assets, maybe keep him from joining the Lakers. Or perhaps Andre Iguodala's former agent just happens to be Rob Palenka, and maybe there's a mutual understanding between the two parties that if and when Iguodala does become a free agent, that he has no um, aversion to joining the Lakers on a minimum contract given the money that will be owed to him. I could see either scenario playing out, but if you added Andre Iguodala to this roster right now, I mean, that would definitely be a final piece that is the final piece. Because if you gave this team another wing defender, especially one at Iguodala's skill level and experience, it would be hard to sit here and say, wow, the Lakers offseason wasn't good. Yeah, Iggy just seems like the absolute perfect last piece to the puzzle for this team. They need one more, I think, 3 and D wing player um, that can kind of defend some of those top-tier wings. Um, Iggy's a player, kind of the the theory of 82 games versus 16 games. Um, He's definitely the 16-game player. He'll, He'll kind of mail it in during the regular season, which is fine. The Lakers would theoretically have enough depth to to not play him every night and to play some other guys um but boy we saw even last year uh once you get to the playoffs he's an entirely different animal and he really is man and it would be great to have him well on that lakers team and just in order to guard guys like Kawhi leonard and or paul george and who knows maybe the two la teams meet in the playoffs and so i i think he would be an asset i could also see a scenario where the lakers like they have in past seasons keep that roster spot open for that 15th and final spot in the event of a midseason acquisition or maybe there's a buyout that's unexpected or whatever just for the purpose of optionality alone but i would agree with you iguodala would be a nice perfect final piece if he does become available and i think with the avery bradley signing just to sort of wrap up the ab piece for me is i think a lot of fans looked at that and said okay avery bradley is the size of a point guard but he's not really a point guard. And on top of that, the Lakers just re-signed Rajon Rondo, re-signed Alex Caruso, brought in Quinn Cook. You have depth at shooting guard with Danny Green, with KCP, with Troy Daniels. So where does Avery Bradley actually fit? And then, boom, we get this news from Chris Haynes that whether or not you want to call it news or not, so be it, again, semantics, that LeBron James is going to start at the point guard position for this Lakers team. Now, we all sat here and a lot of people joked on Twitter, oh, breaking news, LeBron plays the same position he's played for the last, you know, decade plus. And ha ha ha, I know you got to get your Twitter jokes in, it's all fine and good. But I think this isn't just LeBron starting at point guard, that's not really the news here. For me, the news is LeBron starts at point guard, that means Rajon Rondo doesn't. Well, yeah, certainly there were, I liked adding both Caruso and Quinn Cook, but I had my reservations for both, that either of them were a starter. And I was... I mean, the Lakers had done enough smart things this offseason that I wasn't sold on the idea that Rondo was going to be starting. But, I mean, that fear was always kind of in the back of your mind. So, yeah, 100% when they said LeBron starting at the point guard, um, that that was my first reaction as well, is that, okay, well, Rondo isn't. Um... I don't know this might, I mean, it might just be a semantic thing. I don't really think his role will be all that different than it was with those Cleveland teams. Um, the ones that didn't have Kyrie basically, because he's always had success, um, 
again, the years he didn't have Kyrie with kind of the smaller point guards that can shoot. Um, Mo Williams, he kind of helped make him an all-star. Mario Chalmers, um, even your Daniel Gibsons. Um, and, the, I mean, Caruso and Quinn Cook are exactly those types of guys. Uh, and Avery Bradley kind of as well, if he's going to play that role um, as a smaller kind of off guard. So it makes sense uh, to me that he would be the quote-unquote point guard. I think that really just kind of means the ball is going to be in his hands again, um, like it was the last year in Cleveland. And to me, this was more of an acknowledgement of we screwed up last year. Let's go back to what made LeBron great. And, I mean, it, as you look at the roster construction, I mean, that's what they did. They just surrounded LeBron and AD with as many shooters as they can and I would imagine that there's going to be about 400 LeBron AD pick and rolls next year. Oh, so you took the words right out of my mouth on that pick and roll. I mean, you just imagine LeBron coming down with the ball, AD at the top of the key. I mean, put AD's obviously the, the biggest threat, but put DeMarcus Cousins there, put JaVale McGee there. The Lakers have a lot of guys who can thrive in that role. But the LeBron AD one is going to be the best pick and roll in the NBA. Yes, you can quote me on that. Yes, it is not even the middle of July. And yes, I feel comfortable saying that for next season. So take it to the bank on that one. As far as Rondo not starting, I agree with you. I think his role will be similar. Um, I think a lot of Rondo fans, and I and I say fans in uh, sarcastic tone specifically, <laughs> are definitely celebrating the fact that, you know, he's not going to be in the starting lineup. But I also think there is a place on this Lakers team for Rajon Rondo. I get it. He's polarizing. I get it. He gambles on defense. I get it. He can't really shoot. I know the negatives on Rondo, but he has shown the ability to manage these bigger personalities, specifically Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins during his time in New Orleans. Again, I'm talking about off the court right now. He has experience from Boston and managing multiple star personalities. If you want to bring LeBron into the mix, LeBron clearly values what Rondo has to say. And Rondo's been through some wars, so he might not not be the most communicative guy or he might not be the most uh, he doesn't necessarily speak the truth with compassion he might just speak the truth for the sake of speaking the truth but I do think there's a role for Rondo and I think it's important to remember look the Lakers are paying Rondo the minimum let's mm -hmm. not get all twisted up about this they're paying Quinn Cook more money they're paying Alex Caruso more money they're paying Avery Bradley twice what they're paying Rajon Rondo so if you're just going by that metric alone that should tell you what the Lakers level of investment is in Rajon Rondo in terms of the finances so we'll see how it shakes out but I think in terms of the starting lineup now the big question is what do the Lakers do right because if and when LeBron James does get named the starting point guard for this Los Angeles Lakers team which seems like it's already taken to the bank and let's move forward right you have LeBron at the one the story from Chris Haynes that Danny Green starting at the two right? To me, the big question is who you put at the three and then the four and the five. Well, I think it's really going to depend because I don't think there's going to be a Lakers team that on game one with that starting five is going to be the same starting five in game 82. I think there's going to be some mixing and matching going on, but a front line that, it, that, you know, you have Kuzma, you have Anthony Davis, you have JaVale McGee, you have DeMarcus Cousins, assuming he's healthy and ready to play. So you have these options, and if I'm building the starting five for game one right now, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, I see a scenario where it's LeBron, it's Danny Green and Avery Bradley. If you want to kick Danny Green maybe down to the three and put Avery Bradley at the two, you could put Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins in that starting lineup, or you could put Kyle Kuzma and Anthony Davis in that starting lineup. Kind of depends what you think about Kuzma, and we'll get into that in a second. So I'm going with the starting five right now based on this roster of LeBron, Bradley, Green, 
Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins because I just feel like that's where it sits right now. But what's your take on that? It's a big lineup. Don't get me wrong. It's a really big lineup. Yeah, that's what one of the things when we signed Boogie that I don't know how well LeBron, AD, and Boogie will fit on the court together, but I know that they're going to beat the crap out of people for for 48 minutes a night. That is a physical lineup. Um, I mean, to me, I think LeBron, Danny Green, and AD obviously are etched into this lineup right away. Um, the other two spots are interesting. I put KCP as the other guard, but I mean, honestly, it's the Avery Bradley and KCP are kind of the same type of guy anyway. Um, I could see either one of them being the other guard, but I think it'll be one of those two. And then I, I actually put JaVale as the other, or as a center, um, there was, I think, when wrote when Woj reported that he resigned, he mentioned him as the starting to come back as a starter. Um, I don't know if the Lakers knew at that time that it was realistic to get Boogie at the contract that they were going to get him. So maybe their plans might change in that regard. Um, but I do agree on game one. I think this is a starting lineup. I think by game eighty-two, it's going to be an AD Boogie front court. Um, and it's just how it's really just kind of what shape Boogie's in, how much that, whether he, I think it was pretty clear he came back from that injury too quickly in the finals. Um, oh, without question. Yeah. Which I can't blame him. It's the finals. He, he hadn't even made the playoffs before this year. So. And DeMarcus Cousins went into this year with the Warriors, took that deal with the Warriors, not only to win, but in order to rebuild his market value. And as a reminder to everybody, he wound up taking less again to come to this Lakers team. Yeah, but he came – I mean, him and AD are really close, and they were really good in New Orleans together. I'm really interested to see that dynamic. Um, maybe Boogie does start opening night. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um because he'll actually have a summer now to get back in the shape he was before this Achilles injury. And, I mean, we saw, I don't know that Kobe ever really returned to any kind of form when he got back from the Achilles injury, but this has always been a kind of a two-year injury where the second year is where you really start to return to the player that you once were or as close to it um, as you once were. So I think we'll certainly see a better Boogie. Um, I think at times, I I started watching um, yesterday some games last season, Warriors games, to watch both Quinn Cook and Boogie. I think that playoff run might have soured people on Boogie a little bit too much, especially those finals, um, because Boogie was good last year. And like he still very much has a role on a competitive team. Um, he's still this just perfect hybrid in today's in the NBA of like a bruiser who can also shoot from, from range and kind of take advantage of matchups at either way. He's also an incredible passer. Um, and there's times where him and Anthony Davis ran screen and rolls in new Orleans together. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a fair amount of that this year as well. Um, so if Boogie can get back to, I mean, even in the form he was when he came back kind of later in the year last year, 
then yeah, I very much see him as the starter. Um, I mean, so I this, guess it, it's really just kind of a toss up. And I mean, you're talking about, and I agree with you. I think people are, I, I look, I have the concerns about DeMarcus Cousins that I know other people to do as well. What kind of shape is he in? Can he come back after two injuries? Obviously one a lot more significant than the other, but both to the lower body. And he's a load. He's 6'11", 270, 280 pounds, like lateral movement, all that stuff. I get it. There are legit concerns, but you don't get this level of talent for three and a half million dollars without some level of concern attached, right? And this is a player who last year still in a compromised state per 36 minutes Average 23 and 12. I'm sorry, that's a hard player to find, and it's a damn near impossible player to find at three and a half million dollars. Yeah, I mean, 100% of the contract they brought him in at, there is no qualm whatsoever. Like, even if he just produces his literal, like, per game averages of 16 and 8, I think they were at three million dollars, like, you take that in a heartbeat. Um, and it's a very much a low-risk, high-reward signing for the Lakers. I think he is going to massively outperform that contract. I think that's, if that, that's, that's the business the Lakers have to be in when you're building around AD and LeBron, right? you got to, you got to have those players who have the potential to exceed what they're actually being paid in terms of their earning. Yeah, and that's, the, that's kind of the secret for any contending team, and that was kind of the hopes with retaining a bunch of those guys on rookie contracts is that they were going to perform above their value. Um, but with Boogie, I think if you're also looking for optimism, he was never like a super explosive type of player who relied a ton on athleticism. Um, right. So those lower body injuries won't be quite as damaging as they would be for, as we saw with Kobe or somebody like that. Um he was always Lakers fans. Jacob is the man. He is the voice of optimism. So you got to come to him when you're feeling down about something. You come to Jacob and he will spin you back in the right direction. That's that is the kind of reputation I've gained is that if nothing else, I am at times naively optimistic about things. Um, I had gotten into many fights before this uh, summer. I was a little more optimistic about the front office. And then there was like that two-month window where they made like every wrong choice possible and i was like all right maybe this front office is awful and then i'm back on the ship free agency went really well like let's do this i'm back on my my optimism train awesome man well i think a lot of lakers fans are riding that with you and i think kyle kuzma the forgotten man as i like to call him is riding that with you because kyle kuzma for most of this offseason has sort of been operating in silence but i think kyle kuzma is the ultimate x factor in the ceiling of this Lakers team, because I don't think there's anyone out there except the one guy who wanted to challenge me to an argument on Twitter a few days ago, <laughs> but I don't think there's anyone out there who operates out of logic to sit here and say, Hey, the Lakers are likely to miss the playoffs because that's what this guy's stance was likely based on that. Anthony Davis is mentally weak by the way, but that's a different conversation Ooh. for a different day. Anyway, okay, Kyle Kuzma is the ultimate X factor to me because right now the ceiling of this Lakers team is very, very good. Potentially, great but if Kyle Kuzma can become the third star that the Lakers and their fans seem to have been searching for for so long then I think the ceiling of this team both now and moving forward elevates to that next tier whatever you want to call that I mean if we're talking we just talked about guys needing to outperform their contracts um, Kuzma is on the books for 
$1.9 million this year. So it doesn't take a lot for him to outperform his contract. Um, so he'll certainly bring value that way. But I would agree. I would say either him or maybe Boogie, who we just talked about, would be the X factor. I mean, mm-hmm. both could be the X factors. But um, Kuzma, has <laughs> he has a lot of pressure on him because he was the guy. I don't know how the negotiations played out, but he was the guy that the Lakers wanted to keep. Um, and I do agree. I mean, it was, it's been kind of an up and down ride with him from his rookie to his sophomore year. Like I said earlier, he may have been the guy that was kind of jerked around the most last season, but he's still the guy, um, who shot 36% from three as a rookie. Um, I mean, if you get that type of guy on this year's team, he's going to be lights out. Um, and he's still the guy. I mean, we saw it in flashes last season. He scored 41 against the Pistons and only took 24 shots. So, I mean, and I don't think he played the fourth quarter, if I remember correctly. Um, so that guy's still there. It's just, and it's not surprising that a sophomore player hit kind of a, a wall that he needed to, The all the other teams had a year of tape on him. Um, They could scout him a little bit better. They knew what to expect, and he struggled to adapt to that. I think he had a quote during the season that said like he had fixed his or tried to fix his shot like six different times or something to that effect. Um, So I think he got in his own head as well at times. And I mean, that last season messed with everybody. I mean, that was a team that most expected to make the playoffs and. It was pretty clear from the get-go that it was going to be more of a challenge than maybe they expected. So, and especially later in the year when it was becoming increasingly clear that the Lakers weren't going to make the playoffs, that kind of messes with some people. And um, so, yeah, I, I I think Kuzma has done the right thing this summer and kind of fading into the the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he's worked with. A shooting coach, I know, pretty much every day. Um, there's something posted by the the shooting coach, I think it's Lethal Shooter on Twitter, um, who he's worked with um, extensively to hopefully get his shot back to what it was at that rookie year. And yeah, if he if he can become the player he was at rookie year um, and add a little bit more to his game. He's going to have an incredible amount of spot-up opportunities and wide-open looks. And if he can knock those down, um, he's going to have a field day. Like, he is going to put up buckets. I think he's pro- I, we, I think he'll probably be the sixth man. I wouldn't be surprised if he was in the running for sixth man of the year at season's end because I have a lot of, I have a lot of faith that he'll kind of get it figured out. Um, we've seen this a lot before, just – a really good rookie year league figures you out you struggle your sophomore year and then you readjust and go from there and kind of hit the ground running once again well i agree with you in that the third year to me is the key year to look at in a young nba player who you hope is going to become something as the real growth year right so kuzma's got a big year on deck and i think you nailed a couple of the questions that a lot of lakers fans or at least myself speaking on behalf of a lot of lakers fans have one is with Kyle Kuzma is what do you think the best role for him is? And you answer that by saying sixth man. And look, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if he were in the running for sixth man of the year. Don't tell Lou Williams that because he'll tell you yeah. to just 
you know, shut your mouth and <laughs> w- watch me work kind of thing. But by the same token, I think maybe Kyle Kuzma in a six-man role puts him in the best place for continuity right now because it allows him to play a similar style that he's become semi-accustomed to, at least, on this Lakers team. Because he went at times last year, right, more often than not when he was on the court, he was the primary scoring option, especially when LeBron either wasn't on the court or wasn't playing due to injury. That became Kyle Kuzma's role. Now, if he's on the court with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, regardless who else is out there, he's at best the third option. So I think there's going to be some pressure taken off of him from that perspective. I also think he's going to benefit from some continuity, regardless of what his role winds up being. I think there'll be less uh, jerking him around, as you said. I totally agree with that. But I think the thing for me with Kuzma is, are we going to get that player who can shoot it from three again? Because that was a major step back from him. And what else can he provide this team that isn't just scoring? Because I don't think scoring will be the Lakers' problem. But since before Kobe retired, the Lakers have had a serious issue on defense. And that's the end of the floor that I would love to see some real growth from Kyle Kuzma in. Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, it's been the question for a while. Hit. His defensive numbers were a little weird last year. I mean, Synergy grades him as a 75th percentile defender, but their defensive metrics are kind of weird on a lot of things. Just, I, I don't know if the 75th percentile passes the eye test on that one. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, I do agree that, that he struggled. I mean, he was even defensively, he was put in weird spots. Being the small ball five was a really... Oh, that was a bad. That was a horrible, horrible yeah. experiment. I hope to never ever see that again, especially with how many bigs are on the roster. Yeah, and again, that's another sign that the Lakers admitted last year as a mistake that they went and signed a bunch of big men. Um, but I mean, he even went from that to. I mean, honestly, I think he's best at guarding kind of two guards or wings and kind of um, smaller players because I mean, he's kind of a guard in a power forward's body. Um, he doesn't sounds a little bit sounds a little bit like Anthony Davis when you say it like that. Yeah, and I certainly do not want to necessarily compare not, the not two. Not that I'm comparing Kyle yeah. Kuzma to Anthony Davis, right? But you know, yeah. just a little bit similar in that Anthony Davis was a guard until he hit a growth spurt in high school, and that's why he's able to handle the ball so well. Similarly to Kyle Kuzma, I think that's kind of the point that you're trying to get at with that, right? No, yeah, hundred percent, and. I think he struggled at times on defense to figure out where he can be most effective. There have been times where he's looked really good, and that's typically been when he's guarding a wing player. Um, It's just most of the time he's kind of needed to be a stretch four for the Lakers' offense. So, I mean, theoretically that could be another position. I still think Kuzma will close games regardless if he starts or not, similar to to Lou Williams um, last season, like you mentioned. But... Um, if he's closing games and he's playing um, with LeBron and AD, I doubt he's guarding many of the bigger fours or the kind of the bigger three and D guys. So maybe there's reason for to believe there's going to be more success there. Um, Danny Green is obviously going to take the top wing player, so he certainly won't be guarding that. Um, and if Avery Bradley is who he was, as we've discussed earlier, he won't be guarding the second-best wing player. So, I mean, there's, again, a path where he there won't be as much pressure on him, but regardless, he 100% needs to improve on that end um, because especially last season when he wasn't scoring and he wasn't defending, like 
it's hard to make a lot of rationale as to why you have him on the floor. I mean, last year there was no bodies left by the end of the season to take him off the floor, but um, he's very he's been very much kind of a one-dimensional player besides brief flashes offensively. Um, so he either needs to kind of add to his game on that end and become more of a playmaker, which I know is something he talked about. It's not something he did a lot last year. Um, or he needs to step it up on defensively to be able to provide more value when he's not making threes. You know, when you said there were no bodies left, I just had a really dark flashback to Chris Kamen laying flat on the bench <laughs> and Robert Sacre getting 400,000 somehow remaining in the game. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I remember watching that game vividly where I think Steve Nash was like, barely able to walk but also had to go put on a jersey at one point just in case and like so yeah i i remember that i who what the cavaliers i think fired their gm after that game too like that was and as dark, i said I, dark, i've covered times. i've covered a lot of really bad lakers teams that was one of the most fun nights of just clowning on the cavaliers while we had we were only allowed, like, soccer had found out, so we really only had four eligible bodies and still beat the Cavaliers. Dark, dark times, and, you know, just thinking about Chris Kamen versus real quick reminds me of a quick story of when DeAndre Jordan was in his rookie year for the Clippers. I had seats right behind the Clippers bench with a buddy, and Chris Kamen was in the game, and he was really stinking it up, and we really wanted DeAndre Jordan to get in there and show off his athleticism. He wasn't really playing at that point. So we're just screaming. I think Mike Dunleavy was the coach at that point. Put DeAndre in! And no reaction from the bench, except you saw DeAndre turn around and just smile and say, thank you, guys. You know, so, <laughs> so, good, so good times when it comes down to uh, Chris K the Chris Kamen files. But, you know, to wrap it up on Kyle Kuzma real quick, I want to throw play a little over-under with you. Kyle Kuzma... Average 18.7 points last year. So on this Lakers team, one word answers only. Over under 20 points a game for Kyle Kuzma. Under. Under. Okay. Kyle Kuzma shot 30% from the three last year. Shot 36.5 the year before in his rookie year. Over or under 35% from three for Kyle Kuzma this year. Uh, over. The Lakers certainly hope so, right? Because if he's over that 35% mark, that certainly benefits the construction of their team. And then the last one on, on over-under for Kyle Kuzma for me is from the free throw line, 70% his rookie year, almost 71. He was about 75 last year. Over-under, 77.5% from Kyle Kuzma at the foul line. Because as we know, the Lakers really struggled to shoot free throws last year. Over for the sake of my sanity. <laughs> I like that answer. That's honest and logical. We like when both of those worlds collide. So in order to wrap it up on this episode of the Hoopball Lakers pod, I have to ask you for a bold prediction. And that bold prediction, sir, is how many games will this Lakers team win? Keep in mind that they won 37 last year. And I'm going to put myself on the spot. I'm going to project 52 wins for this Lakers team that would represent a 15 win increase and I know the Western Conference is even better than it's ever been but I believe in this Lakers team and the way it's constructed and assuming everybody stays healthy yes that is an assumption and not a certainty by any stretch I feel like 50 to 55 wins is about the window so that is where the 52 comes from I I would move the window down a little bit I think kind of between I think this team will be drastically better but I think the West is also drastically better so I would say I'll say 48 
Okay, so 48. If it's in between 48 and 52, we got to meet up and buy some scratch tickets because we might be on this. <laughs> exactly. I'm down. All right. Jacob, well, I really appreciate you jumping on the Hoopball Lakers podcast. As a reminder to all of our listeners, you can follow us at Hoopball Lakers. Make sure you subscribe and listen to the Hoopball Lakers podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere where you get your radio streaming music. We're available there. Please leave us a review and a rating. It really helps us out. We appreciate all the feedback we get. And as a reminder, you can follow Jacob on Twitter at Jacob Brood. Jacob, thanks for the time today, man. Appreciate you. No problem. Enjoyed it. All right. Let's go Lakers. Until next time, we out. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.